The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The factors contributing to overcrowding of our hospitals and demands being placed on stretched GP services are numerous, but the bottom line seems to be staffing. So how do you encourage more qualified clinicians to remain in Ireland? Does the HSE need a huge reset? And is it simply throwing more money at the situation, ignoring the finer details of actually what's wrong with the structure of the health service here? Now, we're joined by consultant medical oncologist with the St. Vincent Hospital Group, John Crown, by by Drogheda-based GP Amy Morgan, by the President of the Association of Medical Students of Ireland, currently interning at University Hospital Limerick, uh, that is uh, Glenn Curtin, and uh, by a partner in employment law at global law firm Evershed Sutherland, Julie Galbraith, all who have uh, all of whom have different perspectives on this problem. So, good morning to you all. And John Crown, we'll start with you first. Um, trying to keep graduates in nursing or in medicine in Ireland, keep them for a couple of years and then let them spread their wings. Would that help sort the problem? Well, it wouldn't, Pat, and thank you for inviting me on and good morning to all your listeners and, and panellists. Um, the problem, Pat, is, is it's a bit more complex than that. In the first instance, it's good for young Irish doctors to go abroad. It has been good for Ireland. We have amongst the highest trend cohort of senior specialists in the world. And why is that? Because it's in the culture of Irish medicine that you do a certain amount of your training in Ireland, and then you go away to the best international centre of excellence you can find, where you get training which costs the Irish state not one penny. And you then come back fully trained to apply for consultant jobs. Now, <clears throat> the, the other problem, of course, is that because of the bizarre way the HSC is structured, our public health system, that we depend inappropriately on the efforts of our trainees to actually provide the service. In theory, if no non-consultant hospital doctors turned up for work tomorrow, the service should work. In theory, it should, because their primary job is to train and to learn and to gain experience, not to provide service. So, in other words, we're trying to keep people at home to do a job that they shouldn't do at a time when we actually have the opportunity to get them the best training in the world for free internationally. So but, but no John, there is a rate of attrition. I mean, you talk about these people, they're half-trained here, they go off, they get fully trained, they come back and they employ, get jobs employed as consultants. However, not all of them come back, and I'm not sure what the fraction is, but I suspect it is not that high. Uh, I, I can't put a number on what percentage go away and stay away. We've, we've a second group historically in Ireland who are those who are, who are immigrants because there were not job opportunities for them. Now, this is beginning to change because at the career levels of general practice and at the senior hospital specialist ranks, really for the first time in the last few years, we're seeing a, a different kind of shortage. We're seeing a shortage where there actually have been jobs that these senior levels created uh, which are not always being filled because of a dearth of applicants for the jobs. That's a slightly different problem. That's not a question of retention. That's a question of attraction. When we actually have well-trained people internationally, how can we get them to come back to jobs? Uh, and I think the reason that they don't find the jobs very attractive is that the working conditions in the health service at the moment are a little bit unpleasant, uh, and people often have very attractive jobs internationally. If you're training in a wonderful international center of excellence and you're developing an international reputation as a leader in your field, you know, you might be a little bit slow to come back to a place where the grinding workload is such and the support is so bad that you will be leaving that part of your career behind yeah. you. So these are complex issues and they're two separate So, so uh, there's a kind of a chicken and egg here uh, going on because how do you boost the numbers so that the trainees actually just work as trainees observing and so on and given a dig out where uh, necessary but not actually being the clinicians in charge of medical care but there to watch and learn 
uh, and clearly they're not doing that now. They're actually working full time as clinicians. How how do you boost the numbers the, of of the permanent staff so that trainees really remain as trainees and have civilized hours of work? A simple forward answer: reform the health system. And there's been no appetite to do that. In 2011, we had effectively what amounted to a national referendum on this one. We had a general election in which the two opposition parties came together and said that they would undertake a fundamental root and branch reform of the health service and introduce a Canadian, Dutch or German style social insurance model, which would have given us single single tier health care and would have greatly reformed the way the health service was run. But unfortunately, they quickly within one year welched on that. Uh, we've been left with more of the same, and the latest alleged slant care reforms are nothing of the sort. They will enshrine tutor health care. Uh, they will tighten the bureaucratic grip on the public side of the system by a bunch of people, none of whom will use it, the HSC administrators, bureaucrats, senior civil servants, who all have private insurance. Yeah, yeah. So, but, mean, but, but uh, John, here's the issue. I mean, we may think that the public system is so grossly under pressure that it doesn't give a great service. Imagine having no choice. You take away the second tier and you're stuck with the inefficiencies, the bureaucracy, uh, the, the, the waste of money and all the rest of it, because there is no other choice. Who you wants know, that? But, you know, as I, I, I don't disagree with you often on these issues, Pat, but I would disagree with you a little bit on your interpretation of that one, because while there would be a single system of funding for healthcare, which would be uh, based on a, a universal fixed percentage of your income contribution to insurance, whereby the better off would subsidize the less well off, where you deliver that healthcare would not be single tier because there would be different kinds of entrants in that field. I would hope that there would be some entrants which were hold entirely by university, owned rather entirely by universities and medical schools. I hope there would be some okay. that would be private. So the idea that the money follows the patient and Correct. the patient can opt to go for the best care they can find, uh, and it might be private care or it might be a voluntary hospitals, it might be uh, public care, but you go where uh, you can find the best service and the money follows. All right, uh, John, stay with us and. Uh, we want to go to Dr. Amy Morgan, who's a Drada-based GP. How do you see the situation? Does the GP have a key role in sorting out the problems? Oh, I believe they do. And I think, if anything, over the last couple of years, general practice has demonstrated how adaptable it is to uh, to working um, to change conditions and, and being flexible. Um, you know, if you look at the data, I mean, um, upwards of, uh, you know, millions and millions of consultations are carried out. So the bulk of healthcare delivery for most patients who are, and people who are listening to this programme right now are delivered in a general practice setting. Yeah. So but there aren't this, enough of you and that's the problem. This simply is not enough. Um, and, you know, while there is an increased number of GP training places, um, you know, as John said, in terms of our, our quality of trainees, you know, are internationally recognised and there is a market to compete for them. But it takes four years. Um, I went through a four year postgraduate training scheme. Um, and, you know, while they impl- the places are increasing, they've increased since I came on to the scheme and came off. So we're, I think, over 200 places are intake now. Um, and it, it is aimed that we will be shooting for 300 odd by 2026. That is nowhere near enough to cross that gulf between the amount of GPs who are going to retire in the coming five years and the yeah. growing population that we have and also the increased complexity um, and the increased demand on our healthcare services. You know, uh, so the, the capacity is not there. You mentioned four years of a postgraduate to become a GP. Do you think that could be compressed and therefore produce GPs sooner? Or do you need that kind of time to be able to be a general practitioner where you have to spot all ills? Yeah, I, I really do think 
that the quality of the training that GPs in this country receive um, is is second to none. And, you know, a testament to that is, is the fact that there is a demand for our services, but, you know, both here and abroad, um, highly skilled, highly committed individuals. Like in my personal experience, um, you know, I trained in an area that I live several miles from and I've gone back to become a GP in, in one of the practices that I trained in. So that's testament to the, the actual quality of the training that I received. And that's delivered both in, an, in a hospital setting. So, you know, most GP trainees will, will spend two years actually filling hospital posts. So they're very valuable. They actually provide a service within they're the They're doing what, what John is talking Correct. about. They're actually working for a living, supplying medical care while actually being trainees. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, so, and then they spend, you know, a, a good portion of time working in GP practices. So there has to be a certain as well amount of GP practices who are equipped to take on trainees as well. Okay. So GP now, trainers- is the issue that uh, people don't find the job attractive as a GP, uh, financially viable as a, a GP? And are there people who are leaving the country to be GPs elsewhere because it's not attractive here? Yeah, I think there's a, f- a few issues going on and it obviously depends on the, the background of the person um, involved. But, you know, there is a significant cost, particularly if, if you were day one coming out of a scheme and you wanted to set up a practice in an area where you know there is a demand for services, there's a retiring GP and there's a deficiency there and uh, you want to set up. There's a lot of kind of uh, setup costs in terms of bricks and mortar um, and particularly in areas where, you know, you're looking at rural settings where there are no GPs and there looks like there's not going to be any kind of replacement for the retiring GP there is significant financial barriers if you're coming off a scheme to want to be able to set up so I think you know solutions that have been mooted before have been looking at going to the government and the Department of Health to see if there's any facilities for grants for example you know to offset that that cost of, mm-hmm. of getting up and running because you have to remember that GPs are distinct in this country in that they're actually a lot of them are running small businesses and they're they're actually mm-hmm. they're responsible but is that, for is that a good model going forward or should uh, GPs be effectively employed by the state because many who have almost entirely GMS lists and others they've no private practices are effectively at the mercy of the state. Yeah, I think the the model that we have in terms of where I am considered an independent practitioner, albeit I hold a contract with the state to provide services and it makes well like at the moment, you know, when I go into work, you could argue it's it's quite an efficient service in that, you know, for, for in most scenarios, we're able to provide a same day service to the people who need it. There's no distinction between your background. You know, we try and deliver care to the people who in principle need it uh, with the highest priority. Um, and I would argue that as demonstrated the last couple of years in terms of our involvement in the vaccination programme, we're very efficient and we're very adaptable. So, I mean, okay. questions you about... Are, you are a one-tier service, whether I'm a GMS patient or Correct. whether I'm paying, yeah. I'm in the waiting room with everybody else and I get the same service. Correct. But the main issue really is is capacity to be able to deliver whatever service the state tells us that there is a need for going forward. So do you think that the state could construct something that would keep more people in Ireland as GPs? Yeah, and I have to. We have to look at it. The college does surveys of its of its emerging graduates and its existing workforce on an annual basis, and we have to look at the numbers. Like, where where are we going to meet meet that gap in terms of the the numbers who are retiring versus the numbers who are coming on? And we absolutely cannot afford to lose one single person um, to an overseas post. You know, they're yeah. they're very much needed here. Yeah. Now the other question is, uh, a text is prompting it. My daughter has taken out a sixty thousand uh, euro commercial bank loan 
going to pay for her grad med degree. On this basis, no one has the right to demand that she works in the Irish system. In the UK, the NHS offered to pay university fees for every year a student avails of this. They commit to one year working for the NHS. The Irish health system is an incredibly unattractive place to work until that changes. Graduates will keep looking abroad. That idea that uh, your postgraduate training be entirely paid for by the state, but as a trade-off, you have to stay for a year like the NHS. Yes, well, I mean, I stayed for a year. I mean, all graduates stay for a year and then complete their intern year upon training. Yeah, so that's that's ingrained. But in terms of the wider issue of, of that yeah, type of system... Of funding. Of funding. Um, I mean, I think you have to look at all models, but my only fear with that would be that we are missing the point of what, why are the reasons that our trainees are leaving. So if you know you if you you know don't actually address the root cause of the problems, you're really just delaying the inevitable. Yeah, so but for people carrying a big bank loan that is not bankrolled t- by mom and dad. You, know. you can see how that would be viable and I think it has been tried but you know in, in terms of the existing model where you know someone with my background when I did my medical training um, obviously you know tuition was subsidised but that would have been very difficult for me in terms of my background I was the first person out of my family to go to college you know so to, to and never mind to go to medical college so you know I, I think things where there's financial moving of goalposts uh, you know could, could lead it might sound like a solution at the outset but you know could lead to problems in terms of who we actually get into uh, into mm. medicine and we want a wide variety of people with a wide sure. background um, Julie um, before I go to Glenn Curtin who's actually on the front line, if you like, of this debate. I want to go to Julie uh, Galbraith, who's a partner in employment law at the global law firm of Evershed Sutherland. Julie, the, the, the question of whether or not you could impose something like that. We're paying for your education as taxpayers. We can demand that you hang about for a while. Is it viable? Is it done in other sectors? The short answer is probably not. And it comes down to what many of your listeners might be aware of, it's this concept of a restraint of trade or of restricting someone in their ability to access employment, access jobs that they so desire. And many of your listeners, regardless of their area of expertise or their business, may be aware of concepts like notice periods and contracts or restrictive covenants and contracts. That's something we talk a lot about in business. Mm-hmm. And the most common way to try and restrict someone from moving quickly after you've paid a sum of money would be the notice period. So how long is their period of notice? How long do they have to give before they can leave a job and move to another job? Most notice periods are around four weeks, three months, six months for very senior employees. And the problem with very long notice periods is that both the employer and the employee is stuck with the same period. So if the company or in this case, the HSC or a medical practice had an issue with the doctor, they're also required to pay for that six months. The second point worth talking about is this concept of restrictive covenants. And again, this applies across all businesses. How can you restrict one of your employees in moving to another business or a competing business? It's not quite as relevant in the healthcare sector because we would hope that our various hospitals and, and GP practices are not competing against each other, but it's very relevant in the commercial or the business sectors. Um, I, I know that it, within the broad HSE, for example, if you are doing a degree, uh, a doctorate, for example, in psychology, that you have to give a certain number of service to the people who've paid for your fees Uh, before you can depart. Yes, and the other way that that would be covered off in a a commercial contract or an employment contract is where there's a clawback period. So if, for instance, the cost of your your, your degree was €20,000 and you've agreed contractually that you will stay for two years following 
the payment and your completion of that programme if a few things happen. So one, if you don't complete the programme, so if you fail, is there a requirement to work a bit longer or pay some of that back? Or secondly, if you decide to leave and you might have to leave for personal reasons, you could have to move abroad with your husband or wife, Mm. you may have a child, there's all sorts of reasons why you'd have to leave. How can that be clawed back from salary or payments and how is that compatible with say our Payment of Wages Act and other concepts? But the fact that it is there and it's legal uh, within that sector I'm aware of and I think in, in the legal sector aren't people obliged to be apprenticed and stay put for an, a number of years and that's your area. Yeah and at the moment we in Evershed Sutherland are looking at our, our new crop of newly qualified solicitors who we hope will all stay in and continue their career with us but it's the same thing so over the last three years they've been to Blackhall Place with the Law Society they've undertaken their training um, us in, in Evershed Sutherland and many other solicitor firms will pay for that training will pay them for the training but there's no way of stopping them moving. So actually now... So even if you pay for their training, you can't hang on to them? Yeah, we have indentures with the solicitors, but if one of them wanted to leave now and and move abroad to London, which is very common in our sector as well, there's very few ways of stopping them doing that. So the the clever people just get you to pay their fees and then off they go? Off they go. But (laughs) helpfully, we actually can put really good employment benefits in place (laughs) and have a good way of working so many of them want to stay. It it echoes something here, um, Read the conversation we're having. This texter says, junior hospital doctors have always gone for a couple of years. They always will accept that, but entice them back after their couple of years away. The carrot versus the stick. And that's a cue for Glenn Curtin, president of the Association of Medical Students of Ireland, currently interning at University Hospital Limerick. Uh, Glenn, good morning. Good morning. So, what are you going to do? Are you going to go? Are you going to stay? Uh, I think I'm a, a bit of a unique case in, in that I am probably going to take a bit of a break uh, in between going or staying. Uh, I'll probably take a couple of months to do a bit of research and stuff. And to be honest, I just need the break after six months so far being an intern. I think it sounds like a very narrow fence you're sitting on there <laughs> at, yeah. at the moment. But the idea, and you've been talking to your colleagues and so on, uh, do they all really, once they finish their intern period, do they all want to get out uh, just to see the world or get out because what they're enduring is intolerable? So, like, anecdotally, I know that most of my colleagues will be going abroad. And I think there is a huge deterrent in the way the system works at the moment and the fact that just the work hours, the kind of culture around NCHDs, I think they want to experience what a different healthcare system is like. And I think that's what's motivating me to go as well, is that I need to know that things can be better. So when I come back, I know that there's things to be done to improve it. And it's not always going to be stuck like this. Yeah. And that is one of the issues that keeps coming up uh, in our conversations, that if the working conditions were a lot better, if the the hours were guaranteed to be within the law, uh, if, you know, if you wanted to go to a wedding, for example, that you would be guaranteed that those days you'd had off. None of that seems to be the case in the HSE. Um, Just some of the text coming in. My employer paid for me to train as a heavy vehicle inspector and I had to sign a two-year contract. It is standard practice. Another one, the Air Corps have provided pilot training for decades on the acceptance that the qualified have to stay with the Air Corps for an agreed period, surely a possibility in healthcare. I trained as a psychiatrist in the UK. Nobody helped me get a higher training placement abroad and now the HSE is benefiting from my overseas training. I lost out on pension contributions here and came back to higher pr- uh, house prices and there's lots more where that came from. So so uh, Glenn you're going to head off to see the world but ultimately do you want to come back? 
right now, I, I'm not too sure. I like I would love to come back, but I'm not sure if I can. And now what's what what's not sure about can? Is it wages, salaries, employment conditions? It's extremely complex. Like so, employment conditions is one. You know, to have more doctors. And to have more happy doctors, you need to have more nurses, more pharmacists, more porters, more phlebotomists. All the different aspects of a hospital needs to be increased to increase capacity. Increasing doctors just isn't going to do it. And like we have a huge supply of doctors, like Prof Crown and Dr Morgan were just speaking about how we have such high quality of trainees and consultants here. But we also have the highest annual number of medical graduates per capita in the world. We're number one. And we're twice the EU average. Yeah. And then we export them all. We export them all. But also a lot of those are international students that are paying 50 grand a year to study in Ireland. And then we put them at the bottom of the list for intern jobs. So we're kind of telling them systematically that we don't want them. And then it makes it more difficult for the graduates that stay and do an intern year here and motivates them to go Mm -hmm. abroad. Okay. Doesn't give an incentive to come back. All right, Glenn, um, uh, complex it is. Uh, John Crown, listening to Glenn uh, Curtin there talking about uh, those who pay the high fees, their out of state fees, which are enormous here, to study medicine, and then we discriminate against them. Is that your experience? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are two issues here. I mean, I think, and I'm glad that's been brought up because one, one, of, the, uh, one of the misinformation that's been out there in this debate in the last week has been the question of the subsidization of medical, medical, Irish medical students. The greatest source of subsidization for Irish and EU medical students is non-EU medical students. They're charged a multiple, many multiples of what EU uh, students are charged to access Irish medical education. They're a huge, huge income stream and source. Uh, source of subsidization for the education of our doctors. So it could be argued that, in fact, a big part of the debt which is owed, if any such debt is owed, would be to these other foreign governments who who, who do this. The second thing, uh, with respect to others that have commented on other precedents like the Air Corps, etc., the difference is that the folks that are in those training jobs here, they're not actually just training, they're working. They're actually providing a service. So the idea that somehow while they're doing two, three, four, or five years as a non-consultant hospital doctor, they're racking up some kind of a personal moral debt to the system for educating them is, I think, unfair, because they're actually working for the system and providing a, a service to the system, which it could be argued they're being asked inappropriately to do. So I think the I think the parallels fall down a little bit there. Again, I'll go back to the main thing. I think we have such... There's so much that's right with this country path right now. There really is. I mean, there's a, and, and, and I have to say, that even in healthcare, there have been substantial improvements. I mean, the, the breathtaking quality of the young people we have mm. training in our, our various specialties right now. Um, you know, in, in terms of where we are, even economically, we're, we're you know we're, we're way ahead of our, our nearest neighbours in the adjoining island. But back here in the mainland, we're doing better than they are. I mean, there's so much that's right with this place. Our universities are full hopping with really smart people, but we need to fix the health system. And I, yeah. I just don't see the will and to do that. Like, Glenn, I, Glenn's point that it's not just about doctors, it's about all the other medical professionals who need to be there in support of what the doctors do. You have to have sufficient numbers. I mean, the number of doctors frustrated by the fact they can't get a scan at nine o'clock 
o'clock in the evening because there's nobody to work the machine, uh, an expensive machine. I'll read one more text. My son is one of the 300 junior hospital doctors from Ireland in Perth. They have a fabulous lifestyle while training there. They are valued with good working conditions, uh, but do not want to, but do want to come back after a year or two. I met one who wants to do GP training here, but failed the exam to get on the scheme. It makes no sense to make a fully qualified doctor sit an exam to get on the scheme. Surely uh, you get them all on the scheme and test them during the scheme. So he's considering staying in Perth rather than resitting that exam. Um, not sure we're getting too far with this uh, debate. Amy, your final comments? Yeah, I think, um, as uh, Prof Crane said, you know, it, it is the system and it's the capacity within the system. And we do get a lot, of, an awful lot of things right in this country. But, you know, we, we want to be able to compete. We want to make our health system attractive for the people uh, who want to work in it. And absolutely, I, I would say most people who train in this country do want to stay here. An awful lot of people will have families, they will have roots um, and they want to deliver care in the communities that they trained in. So really, I just think we have to continue to listen to the people who have uh, the experience on the ground who are telling you what the problems are and what the solutions are, because there are solutions and they have been implemented in other countries that have attracted our graduates and have retained them. So what's yeah. different about them? It's, versus it's us? getting from the deficit, uh, which is an appalling deficit, to the surplus. What is the because if it's mm. so unpleasant, it's going to be very difficult to address. And it, the it will it will either the consequences in terms of for years to come for someone like me moving through my career. You know, um, I, I want to see graduates come on screen is uh, on stream and, and stay here to support me in the work that I do as well. You know, um, so we, we have to get this right. All right, we will leave it there. My thanks uh, to all our guests, John Crown, consultant medical oncologist with the St. Vincent's Hospital Group, Dr. Amy Morgan, that last voice there, Drogheda-based GP, Glenn Curtin, president of the Association of Medical Students of Ireland, currently interning at UHL, and Julie Galbraith, partner in employment law at the global law firm Evershed Sutherland, uh, who indicated it's not that easy to hang on to people. If they want to go, they can go. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.